Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, April 23rd. I'm Lorraine Caceres. Here are today's headlines. The battle to reopen the country. New models say states should wait. A new poll says most Americans support the protections. So why are so many states forging ahead anyway? Job crisis. For the fifth straight week, millions of new Americans file for unemployment, a devastating blow to the labor force. And politics versus science. President Trump at odd with advisors on whether coronavirus will return this fall, as a government official overseeing a potential vaccine says he was removed from his job for political reasons. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. We begin today with the latest developments in the coronavirus pandemic. As the showdown is developing, pitting President Donald Trump's political concerns against the facts being shared by scientists advising the White House. But before we get to that, first, the numbers. Worldwide, more than 2.6 million people have been infected by COVID-19. In the United States, almost 850,000 reported cases and more than 46,000 people dead as 4.4 million tests have been conducted in the country so far. And despite those numbers, there's a battle to reopen the country. Two new polls find 80% of Americans support strict stay-at-home measures, but governors around the country are moving forward to reopen things, despite models showing stay-at-home orders in some parts of the country should remain until June. The heated debate about whether plans to reopen are moving too fast is boiling. It's a health hazard, honestly, right now. With everything that's going on, it's way too early. In Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp is standing by his decision to open places like gyms, tattoo parlors, and bowling alleys tomorrow. It's one way to stay healthy and, you know, keep your immune system up and fight off this virus. If people don't want to go, Martha, they don't have to. A decision that President Trump says he respects but disagrees with. It's just too soon. I think it's too soon. But officials like the mayor of Las Vegas says things are not moving quickly enough and wants casinos to open as soon as possible. I want our restaurants open. I want our small businesses open. I want our people back in employment. Admitting there is no plan to reopen the city safely and now facing backlash after offering her citizens as a controlled group to test social distancing. But hasn't it been because of social distancing that the numbers have been what they are? How do you know until we have a control group? We offer to be a control group. Anybody who knows anything about statistics knows that, for instance, you have a vaccine. You're off. A model from the University of Washington suggests no states should be reopening businesses before May 1st. And 12 states will have to wait until at least June 8th or later to consider relaxing social distancing measures. One of those states is South Carolina, which will reopen tomorrow. According to a new poll, 80% of Americans across party lines support strict shelter-in-place policies. California's Governor Gavin Newsom firmly closing the door on reopening large sectors of the economy. We have tried to make it crystal clear uh, that there is no light switch and there is no date. Senator Mitch McConnell suggested states should file for bankruptcy instead of asking the federal government for aid, a comment that's getting pushback from both sides of the aisle. A shocking report from researchers at Northeastern University about the spread of COVID-19 
They say coronavirus was spreading in the U.S. in early February as attention was focused on China. University researchers shared their model with the New York Times. It shows outbreaks were spreading undetected in Boston, San Francisco, Chicago and Seattle before testing confirms any rise in cases. Researchers found there could have been 28,000 infections in those cities at a time when health officials had confirmed only about two dozen. And we're learning more about one of the first deaths in the country related to the virus. Relatives of 57-year-old Patricia Dowd say she died at home on February 6th. She was in good health, didn't smoke and exercise routinely. Dowd developed flu-like symptoms for a few days, then appeared to recover before ultimately dying. Santa Clara County, California health officials presume her case was one of community transmission. And will there be a second wave of coronavirus? That's what many people want to know as the country starts to slowly ease restrictions. But the president and top health experts seem to have different answers. Andrea Linares explains. President Trump insisting if coronavirus comes back in the fall, it won't be as bad as what we're currently fighting. In my opinion, from everything I've seen, it can never be like anything that we've witnessed right now. But the president's comments were at odds with top White House coronavirus advisors during this back and forth. When you say there's a good chance that COVID will not come back. We don't and know. It, we will have coronavirus in the fall. The president also saying that Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield was misquoted when he said challenges from the coronavirus could be more difficult in the winter. Dr. Redfield himself later clarifying everything. I didn't say that this was going to be worse. I said it was going to be more difficult and potentially complicated because we'll have flu and coronavirus circulating at the same time. But Redfield asked directly if he was misquoted. I'm accurately quoted in the Washington Post as, as difficult, but the headline was inappropriate. Meanwhile, a top official who was overseeing the production of a potential coronavirus vaccine is now speaking out. Dr. Rick Bright was removed from his post. He says he defied directives to push the antimalaria drug, hydroxychloroquine. In a statement, Bright said, it was in response to my insistence that the government invest the billions of dollars allocated by Congress to address the COVID-19 pandemic into safe and scientifically vetted solutions and not in drugs, vaccines and other technologies that lack scientific merit. The president was asked about the situation during the briefing. I never heard of him. Uh, if the guy says he was pushed out of a job, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I did have to hear the other side. I don't know who he is. The weekly jobs report is out. More than 4 million Americans filed for unemployment last week as jobs cuts continue escalating across the country. This as we learn more about President Trump's executive order curbing legal immigration into the country. Claudio Seda has the latest from Washington, D.C. Claudia? Good afternoon from Washington. That's right. The coronavirus pandemic continues to hit the economy as more Americans are losing their jobs. 
Check this out, the numbers are scary. More than 4 million Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week, according to the Labor Department, and 26 million Americans have applied for unemployment benefits since mid-March. Now, there are workers who have been laid off, or furloughed, not since the Great Depression, we have seen this number of jobs lost in such a short period of time. Also, I want to point out that the record number of Americans seeking benefits is overwhelming the system. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, the president signed an executive order bearing legal immigration for 60 days, but the order is not as far-reaching as initially proposed. There are no broad restrictions or green card holders, and there are lots of exceptions, and this includes people who are currently in the country, people with valid immigrant visas, people with work visas such as nurses and physicians and farm workers. It does not affect exposes and unmarried children of U.S. citizens. The president says that he is going to evaluate this executive action and that he might issue another one. Now back to you. Thank you, Claudia Uceda, reporting from Washington, D.C. And a major financial firm is issuing a warning about the global economy. Ratings agency Fitch says an unprecedented post-war recession is now underway. The company says global gross domestic product is set to fall by 3.9% in 2020, a drop that would be twice as severe as the 2008-2009 recession. It looks like the annual 4th of July celebration could still take place despite the pandemic, at least according to President Trump. The president says the event will move forward and has hailed the success of last year's celebrations. Last year's salute to America at the Lincoln Memorial included military tank displays and flyovers, as well as music from military bands. The president said authorities will probably limit attendance this year to 25% of what was last seen last year. President Trump will deliver the commencement address to the U.S. Military Academy's graduating class this year. West Point says the class of 2020 will return to campus to attend the ceremony in mid-June. The academy switched to online learning this last month. West Point is in New York, the state hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic so far. The academy says the procession will look different this year because of measures to protect against the spread of the coronavirus. And protests over states' responses to the coronavirus have been popping up around the country, including New York State, the epicenter of the U.S. outbreak. Despite the risk involved, a group of residents are employing Governor Cuomo to reopen the state immediately, arguing closure is worth, worse than the illness. Nayeli Chavez-Geller has the details on the governor's controversial response. Some protesters arrived in their cars to abide by social distancing protocols. But others just stood outside Albany State Capitol building with banners demanding Governor Andrew Cuomo to give them back their lives. The people gathered said their small businesses are essential for their survival and that their financial problems caused by the state shutdown are more dangerous than the coronavirus. If the illness... During Governor Cuomo's daily briefing, a reporter questioned him over what some residents expressed about the cure for the pandemic being worse than the illness. The illness is death. What is worse than death? 
the reporter insisted on people's current situation being dire. Well, what if somebody commits suicide because they can't pay their bills? Yeah, but the illnesses may be my death as opposed to your death. You said they said the cure is worse than the illness. The illness is death. How can the cure be worse than the illness if the illness is potential death? The governor insisted that if people are so desperate for money, they could always go out and find a job as an essential worker. According to Governor Cuomo, New Yorkers need more coronavirus and antibody testing in order to determine how safe it is to go back to work and avoid a new wave of infections and death. In New York, Nayeli Chavez-Geller, U News. There's no limit to the sacrifices of those on the front lines of the coronavirus battle. In addition to risks, risking their lives in hospitals, healthcare workers must stay away from their loved ones at home to protect them. Elin Cardet has the story of one nurse who is sacrificing everything in the fight against COVID-19. This commotion is making heroes out of those in the medical community, but for those fighting the coronavirus pandemic like Diana Torres, life is bitter and very hard at the moment. Every new patient seems to move Diana further and further away from her family, another day spent in an attic that she's converted into a bedroom in order to protect her family. It's been over a month since she's been able to hug her three children, who are confined to the first floor of their house along with her husband, while her mother-in-law is quarantined on the second floor. It hurts that I didn't have the opportunity to choose my family first over my occupation. By the time I was ready to make a decision, it was already too late. I had already been exposed to the virus at a steady rate. At that point, I became a danger to my family. Her shifts last over 12 hours. At work, she barely socializes. At times, Diana is able to eat a donated meal with her colleagues. Those co-workers, just like her, might be contagious, but ultimately can be sure they were only recently able to get tested themselves. One of my patients died on me. When I called in their death, I told the doctor, this patient did not die alone, that I was there with them. It was the first thing that occurred to me to convey that message. What makes her exhausting job even more difficult are the few minutes she gets to be a mom again at home from a distance. For now, her only satisfaction, the only thing that keeps her going is when a patient recovers from the virus. But her concern is that these victories will be in vain if quarantine measures are lifted too soon and that her family, herself, her colleagues will ultimately have to pay the price. Aileen Cardet for U News. Wisconsin health officials say 19 coronavirus cases are connected to the state's controversial primary election. Those 19 people voted in person or worked the polls for the April 7th primary election. A state health official notes several of the people who tested positive said they had other possible exposures to the virus as well. Republicans in the state won a court battle to hold in-person elections in the middle of a pandemic. The ruling was heavily criticized. Coronavirus forcing Tyson Fresh Meats to shut down another plant, this one in Logansport, Indiana. All 2,200 employees will be tested for coronavirus while the plant is closed. 
Tyson hasn't said whether anyone has already tested positive. The company says workers impacted by the shutdown will still get paid. The announcement comes on the heels of Tyson plant closure in Iowa. Meanwhile, 114 cases of coronavirus have been connected to a single meatpacking plant in Texas. The Texas Department of State Health Services says the cases are associated with the JBS plant in the town of Cactus. Moore County, where the plant is located, has one of the highest rates of infection per capita in the state. County officials say that's because of rapid testing. Health officials say they met with the plant owner last week to evaluate employee safety. The plant remains open. Many of the nation's hundreds of thousands of dreamers are already used to adversity in their daily lives, but now coronavirus has created a serious new challenge. Jaime Garcia brings us the story from Los Angeles. Thousands of young DACA recipients enrolled in U.S. colleges and universities, already used to an uphill fight, have been blocked from receiving the financial aid earmarked by Congress and signed by President Trump for students affected by the coronavirus pandemic. We have always been very positive people fighting for a better tomorrow. We are hardworking and we will not give up. This week, the Department of Education announced the rapid distribution of more than $6 billion in assistance to college and university students. But the law approved by the Congress limits the financial assistance to U.S. citizens and eligible foreign students. We condemn this country's decision to turn its back on those young people that are trying to advance during this COVID-19 pandemic. Many of them are not only worried about their education, but also the support of their families. Of the 700,000 young people with DACA, it is estimated that at least 40,000 students live in California and are registered in public colleges and universities, many of them depending on the financial help provided by the state. Without question, the state of California, our state, has to back these young men and women up with the financial resources necessary for them not just to survive, but to actually to thrive. It is deeply shameful that the federal government has turned their backs on these young dreamers, these young women and men who face every imaginable obstacle to get to this country, to navigate all the landmines K-12, and to actually secure a spot in higher education. During COVID-19, this is the time to back them. College students with DACA confront this situation just when the U.S. Supreme Court is about to decide if they keep the program that right now protects them from the deportation. In Los Angeles, Jaime Garcia, your news. A new documents show immigration enforcement agents have access to detailed information of DACA recipients. That's despite assurances by the Trump administration to the contrary. The documents were obtained by the pro-immigrant group Make the Road. They show ICE has the information to go after targeted DACA recipients. Paige Austin is an attorney at Make the Road. Paige, your organization filed a Freedom of Information Act to request these documents. What exactly did you find? Uh, well, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. 
Uh, you're right. We filed a Freedom of Information Act request a, over two years ago now, right after the Trump administration tried to terminate the DACA program. And what we learned through documents that we received in response uh, just a couple of months ago is that ICE can access DACA applications and can access information contained in DACA applications, despite the promises that the government made when the DACA program was created, that the information included in those applications would be protected from disclosure. What we did not learn was how often this is happening and how widely ICE is, is accessing this information or using it to try to deport DACA holders or DACA applicants. Um, but we were very, very alarmed by what we learned. And Paige, just to put this in perspective for our audience, why is the discovery so significant? It's significant because when DACA was created, the government intentionally sought to build trust and to encourage people to apply for the program by promising applicants that their information would be protected from disclosure for the purposes of enforcement. That was the language that was used on the application. That was the language used on the USCIS website. And that has been the, the public language and even the language in lawsuits um, defending the government's termination of the DACA program. And so there are hundreds of thousands of people with DACA who relied on that advice and who made their decision to apply in part with that understanding. And so what we learned here was um, not only that that is not the case, that in fact ICE can access this information, but also that the government was um, was trying to obscure that. They did not want to make that clear in their testimony to Congress or in their other public-facing documents. They've really been trying to hide the extent to which ICE can access this information. And Paige, when DACA was instituted under President Obama, what kind of guarantees were applicants given in terms of protecting their personal information? What exactly were they told? The protections for DACA were contained in the application and also on USCIS's website and materials. And what people were told was that unless you fell within certain exceptions, unless you were met very few um, criteria for exceptions, such as having committed fraud, then your application would be shared from disclosure for the purposes of enforcement action. And that was not a new concept. That has historically been how the government treats applications to USCIS for affirmative relief. Those are not used to go out and conduct enforcement actions against the people who apply, again, except for in very limited circumstances. And so um, people relied on that advice, and, and um, it, was, it was certainly reasonable to do so given the historic practice of the agency. Are there any steps being taken to prevent ICE from using that information? Absolutely. So since we since we found this out, um, we are calling on USCIS, which is the agency to which DACA applications are submitted, not to share the information with ICE, to halt the practice of making this information available to ICE. We're calling on elected officials and Congress to understand more, to, to call for answers about this access, and also to call for an end to this practice. And I think there'll also be many people considering legal action. Well, thank you so much for your time. Paige Austin, attorney at Make the Road. More of you news after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Wednesday to protest what they say is a lack of protective gear and other medical supplies, including body bags. The workers banged on noisemakers, held signs and chanted slogans as they called on government authorities to provide more supplies. Bolivia has taken aggressive measures, including a nationwide quarantine and closing the country's borders. The country has recorded at least 670 cases and 40 deaths. A hospital in Chile has installed a thermal imaging system to automatically screen employees' temperatures. The system's software identifies human faces and tests their temperatures using thermal technology. If someone shows a fever, an alert is sounded. According to the hospital, the system's primary function will be to screen employees to be sure that any that do have a fever are treated early for infections. Chile has more than 11,000 COVID-19 cases and 160 deaths. Mexico has more than 10,000 cases of coronavirus, the fifth highest tally in Latin America. And as senior health officials warn, the transmission of the virus is intensifying. For patients at one hospital in Mexico, communication and contact with loved ones has become a challenge. But as Jorge Hernandez explains, some are turning to a simple tool to stay connected with those who matter the most to them. We're going to try to solve this. Please know I'll be here with you. These are the words from 55-year-old Don Francisco. He's in bed number 157 in the COVID-19 wing at this public hospital. The message is a relief for his son, who for 12 days didn't know of his father's whereabouts. I feel really happy because I got good news. And from the paper, I know it's him. I recognize his handwriting. Messages like this are hanging at this hospital's entrance. They're messages of love in the time of coronavirus, meant to calm anxious relatives. This is romance in bed number 162. To my dear Patty, with all my love, I hope to get out soon. Kisses to the children. It's the only way to get a message across to them. They also get depressed by being unable to see us. There are also goodbyes. Sergio Mendez in bed 159 writes, Take care of Ariel. He's going to need you. Go to a notary. The house should be signed off to you and Ariel. I hope to see you again. And even more fatalistic, if something happens to me, cremate me, okay? The messages are also written in bottles of water, toilet paper, and toothpaste with phrases like, you are our hero. We're writing because we're desperate at not being able to see him. I say eat well and drink plenty of water in my bonbon. That's how I call him. Patients are isolated while battling not only the virus, but also loneliness. These messages are like medicine in a country that's entering phase three, in which a massive increase in cases is expected. A rise in cases and hospitalizations is coming, though times are ahead as the president has already cautioned. The nation's health officials say there are nearly 10,000 confirmed cases in the country and over 800 dead. 
As for Don Francisco, his family is anxiously waiting for him back home. They want to hug him and celebrate how an 85-year-old beat the virus that has claimed so many lives around the world. Jorge Hernandez, U News. In Colombia, a couple who met at a homeless shelter got married. Maria Cecilia Osorio and Alfonso Ardila met a month ago when both of them were unable to pay rent during the pandemic and lost their housing. Shelter residents set up chairs and an altar. More than 200 guests attended the outdoor wedding. The lovebird now shares space in a tent at the shelter. They're both looking ahead to the end of the quarantine scheduled for May 11. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.